there, and welcome to the Punched and Played podcast, the sometimes funny, sometimes analytical podcast all about board games and the unique experiences they create. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Rose, along with Jonathan Baker. Hello. And Clint Broadbent. Howdy. How are you fine gentlemen doing the night? Fantastic. Absolutely great. Well, I imagine you're probably doing just great because we got to play a game before the podcast. We got to play The Ancient World by Ryan Lockett. And this is a game that it's all about worker placement, but it has a unique little twist to it. So each of your workers, you start out with three of them, but each of them have a different skill level. So depending upon where you place the worker, if somebody else wants to go to that same space that you've already been to, you have to put a worker that's at a higher level to be able to go there. So essentially you can block people. The whole setup of the ancient world is we are a civilization, a city-state, that's trying to help the five tribes of the land to fight off these titans that are destroying the villages. So the whole point of the game is to use your military strength and buy empire cards to win the favor of the different tribes. I mean, I like the setting, that kind of a mythical Greek city-state. Um, once again, the art really carried that a lot. It's really nice to see, you know, kind of the islands and, and the rolling hills and and all that kind of stuff, the little developments that you would have. So, Yeah, one thing that does really interesting, besides just the worker placement that have different strength levels, essentially, there's also the way that the military is handled. Yeah, that's a really neat thing where once you use your military, you have to pay them every time you use them. And once the more you use them, you got to keep paying them more and more. And then you can uh, upgrade your military and you'll go out and hire a new military and you'll basically put them out and the older military unit that you had, you've got to retire it, replace it, and it will have some kind of a benefit on the bottom of the back of the card and you'll kind of slide that underneath your new military card and it will contribute that. It's kind of like the veterans have trained the new troops. They've kind of given them their wisdom and their, their insight. Yeah, so they, the rule book refers to them as legacy effects. So essentially the legacy of the old armies are able to teach the newer army some things. So that's a really interesting aspect. So what, when you're retiring, the, the old army gets weaker typically but it still helps the new army to be stronger. So it's a really cool element. So you have to kind of budget that element of fighting the Titans and winning favor by the tribes, but also having to balance trying to get banners of the different tribes by buying those empire cards, which give you special abilities, income. You can go up to five workers, So you have to, but you have to be able to feed those workers each round or you won't be able to use them. So it definitely revisits aspects of a worker placement game, but does some rather interesting things and a very nice aesthetic package. Yeah, I like the set collection aspect too, where you're trying to get the different tribes to support you. And you can do that, you know, like we said, through fighting the Titans, through adding developments of that particular tribe. Absolutely. So I, I'm definitely a big fan of this game. I'm definitely happy I picked it up, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. What were your thoughts? I thought it was kind of a neat game where your workers are of various strengths, and so you kind of had to balance which worker you used at which time and think of, you know, somebody going to block you out or somebody going to take what you want, or are you going to be really mean and block somebody else out? Jonathan thought it was a really cutthroat game. I thought it was pretty par for the course. Yeah, a lot of people have criticized the game for being kind of mean. But again, like I was saying, keep saying, like in Agricola, you take a spot, no one else can go there. 
But here, at least you have the option that if you kept a higher worker, you could still possibly go to some of these spots. So again, there are ways to block people, but I don't feel like it's any more aggressive than any other worker placement game. It just adds some more depth. Yeah, I really liked it. I'm a big worker placement fan. I love most of uh, Ryan Lockett's stuff that he does. I thought I thought this was another solid entry from him. I would give it two thumbs up. This is my first Ryan Lockett game to jump into. I backed his Kickstarter for Above and Below. Very excited about that. But I really wanted to try out another one of his designs because I absolutely love his art style. And I was really debating between City of Iron and the Ancient World and just kind of looking it over and being a worker placement game, I was very excited. I do not regret it getting it at all. It's a very nice game. Yeah, playing both of them, I think that Ancient World is very solid. They're very different. Both of them still have set collection. I think Ancient World is more of a, I would say it's a little bit, it's not as heavy as City of Iron. I'd say just maybe it's a tiny step below, but that's not at all a bad thing. No, not at all. I'm actually kind of glad that it's not as heavy. I get a little tired of games that bog you down with so many different options. Yeah. I think that, honestly, I think some of the stuff that he learned from City of Iron, I could see that some quibbles that I have of City of Iron, I think that he fixed in a lot of ways in Ancient World. So in other news, Board Game Geek Con has sold out in March. Thankfully, we each of us have our tickets secured. So, are you are you surprised that they sold out so quickly? I was shocked. Um, I've gone to I've gone to BGG Con two years now. This will be my third. Absolutely love it. But I always kind of tended to. I remember. I think last time I bought my tickets were like in September. I just can't believe that it's you know it sold out in March. Yeah, that's just crazy. Then we buy our tickets in May last year? I think so. Okay. Well, I'm glad we were early birds this year. So very excited for Board Game Geek Convention. This will be our second time to go. And I'm I, now that we've got the first one out of our out of our system, at least Jonathan and I, that was our first one. Clint, you've been before. Mm-hmm. But I think we overdid it on the first day. Just oh, a yeah. Bit. <laughs> just a smidge. And I think, Jonathan, you've been working on an article about kind of your experiences being a newbie in the convention field, yeah, right? I'm, I'm still working on that, but I started that, yes. Excellent. Well, we look forward to reading it in the quasi-near future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have it out before the next BGGCon. We'll hold you to that. <laughs> you heard it here first. So this is kind of tangential, but we talked a little bit about stretch goals last week, and there's been something that I've kind of seen that's kind of emerged in recent Kickstarters. And Stonemeyer Games, they put out Euphoria on Kickstarter and a couple of other games, and they're working on the upcoming side of the game. But they put out a blog post recently about, instead of using stretch goals, using an achievement system. Essentially, if we hit this milestone of having this many likes on Facebook or enough people post certain pictures of this, you unlock little achievements, they will unlock extra pieces or something like that. The Kickstarter Exploding Kittens, which raised $8 million. <laughs> which insane. Crazy. When our friend Joe told me that it, it got $8 million, I was like, there's no way. And I went and checked. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Very surprised. So, but that, that used a, an achievement system. It wasn't necessarily that if we raise this much money, we'll unlock new content or whatever. But the idea is Jamie, who's done works for Stonemeyer Games, he's kind of toying around with this because he's getting ready to put out the new treasure chests. For those of you that don't know, treasure chests are 
upgraded tokens and little pieces that you can use to upgrade your game. So, for example, whenever he put out the game Euphoria, which is a game we got to play at game night last week, the Kickstarter version actually had really nice gold bars instead of wooden bars, and they had little bricks that looked like bricks, and they were really, really nice. And people who missed out on the Kickstarter, they were really disappointed because they wanted to have those really nice components. But because they were Kickstarter exclusives, he decided to put out a treasure chest set, which would add slightly different, so they're still Kickstarter exclusive, but tokens that kind of pimped up the game a bit. And this, these can be used with any game. So they're getting ready to put out three new treasure chests on Kickstarter, and that'll be coming out on April 14th. But one of them is going to be a set that pimps out the, the tokens and pieces for Power Grid. So you'll actually get little red nuclear bombs or chunks of coal or real barrels of oil, and it looks really neat. And they even have, I think, some pieces that would work for Robinson Crusoe, like little fires and all that. So Cool. So the idea, he's toying around with this idea of achievement systems versus stretch goals. I didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that at all. If that makes a difference to you, or you just don't really care? I, I, I like the idea. I've started to see some of the other, some other projects start to work on that i know con man which is is yes. kind of an indiegogo kickstarter big thing for um, like nathan philly and attic tudic i i like the idea and i think that it's really good way to stay involved even after you've donated your money even after you've pitched your money in you can you could give a like you can tell other friends to like it and liking doesn't cost anything and so i think it, as long as it adds value into the into the overall package I like it. I think it's a good idea. I just it's the same kind of thing that you have like in video games. There's nothing that that ruins it for a fan base than people that feel like that they're holding out part of the game to release in the DLC or an expansion. So, again, I there's I kind of don't like that. I I I kind of balk at that. I feel like uh, if we're putting forth all this money, if you're getting millions of dollars, I really want to see the best product and the full product over maybe having something held back for an expansion. Yeah, I think the idea with the achievement system, instead of using the stretch goals, are designed for maybe projects that don't have a lot of content. They already have a really high-quality game. They've put the stuff in. So, like, for example, in the treasure chests, which, again, he hasn't launched yet. I'm not certain if he's going to do it. I think he's toying around with the idea. But essentially by achieving certain unlocking those achievements, you would actually unlock additional tokens. You just get more of them in the set. Oh, so That'd be awesome. You'd still get the, they kind of have still have the base number that they're going to be starting out with, but as they unlock achievements, they'll just add more tokens in. I like it. anything that adds value to the product. I I can get behind. Yeah, so it's a new idea. I I I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some stretch goals kind of dissipate to a certain extent on some projects. Maybe more of these achievements. So interesting. So I kind of want to get an idea of what games you guys have been playing recently. And now we got to play The Ancient World, really enjoy it. So what other games have you had an opportunity to play recently? Um, I had an opportunity to play Tragedy Looper with you guys. So um, so I guess everybody can kind of chime in here. But one thing, I've really been looking forward to Tragedy Looper. I've heard a lot of great things about it. Just kind of in a different vein of deduction and... I love anime. I think anime is awesome. So while some people are kind of are poo-pooing the anime art style, I think it's I think it's fantastic. But we got to we got to get that to the table. Sean, you were you were the mastermind, 
and uh, we had three intrepid investigators and even though we got a lot of good hints and a lot of good proddings we bumbled it up at the last jump and weren't able to solve the mystery uh, and so we had a really good time it was really unique what did you guys think about it it was very stressful being the mastermind <laughs> because i mean it was the first time that any of us had played it one thing that the game does a good job of is it breaks down kind of the first steps sort of chapters that you do and then you also have basic loops as well so the first ones really are designed to help you kind of ease into it and get a feel for the game and for the mastermind side it does a really nice job of giving you hints about hey maybe you should try this if this has already happened try this so it kind of gets you an idea of what type of strategies might be useful and helps you to learn how to play the mastermind role a little bit better yeah essentially the problem that the protagonists have is that they really can't talk to each other except whenever they finish a loop so before we start a next the next loop they can kind of talk with each other and kind of get an idea and share information but essentially you're playing cards blind you get, you get to place cards in different locations or on certain characters on the board but what allowed the mastermind to win in that game was in the very last round essentially two protagonists played the same card which was a once per loop card and whenever that happens they cancel each other out which allowed me to still accomplish what I was going for so I like that that you can kind of talk with and plan things out in between loops but while you're doing it you just kind of have to try to figure out what your teammates are planning to do as well what were your thoughts Jonathan I thought it was cool sad we weren't able to save the girl at the end there but we did try we tried very hard and you know I thought it was a a neat game I, I felt like I was able to kind of solve who was who but I didn't trust my gut, and so, you know, that I didn't do what I should have done. One thing that I always would say is that I keep playing a lot of these games, and I'm looking for something unique, and I really felt like this was something genuinely unique. I thought it added something. It was a really unique way. I mean, it was deduction at its heart, but it really, I think it paid off. There was a lot of upfront. I mean, I think we had like a half an hour's worth of rules explanation which was done well by Sean I thought you did a great job teaching but it was a lot to take in and I think it was overwhelming for everybody but once we started going I really felt like it kind of clicked and that has definitely stuck with me even though we played other games at game night I really felt like that was one that I really wanted to get back to the table real quick yeah absolutely that's the game after that night I was really excited to try it again So, unfortunately, I think Joe was the other member of our team, so we'll unfortunately have to find a third protagonist to take his place as you progress. He he couldn't deal with our failure, and so he moved away. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) So, uh, Jonathan, you're up for playing this Tragedy Looper game again? Yes, definitely. Excellent. So, what other games have you been playing recently? For me, I played Bruges recently. Got to teach that to two other players. And it was fine. It was a good experience. Kind of got a little bit burned out on Bruges. So it's, it was what? pretty good. I know. It's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, also, I took another stab at the Lord of the Rings Redhorn Gate scenario with my daughter Kayla again. And this time we died in the first, first, first quest phase. Gimli took a goblin spear to the heart. And after that, we realized it was all over. So oh, that's too we, bad. we kind of conceded at that point. Yeah, one of the other games I already mentioned, we got to I got to play Euphoria. Uh, this is a game that I've had, and I've only got to play it a handful of times, but I was excited to get it out. I learned an interesting lesson playing Euphoria. I think the way that you're taught the game 
definitely influences how you approach it. Because when we played this game, it was it almost became a negotiation game. Whenever you're playing Euphoria, part of the game is getting resources and then unlocking the markets. And whenever you contribute to unlocking that market, you get to put one of your victory stars. The whole point of the game is to get rid of all your stars. And if you don't contribute to the building of that market, when it flips over, there's a penalty that everyone who did not contribute, they have to suffer that consequence until they eventually contribute something to that market. And the, the what it takes to contribute is typically much more expensive than it would be to set it up from the very beginning. And so I'm, I'm not saying this is the, a, a wrong way to play. It's just a completely different way to play. And I, I it was a very different experience, but it was a, it was, it was still good. I still really enjoyed it. It just had a very different feel. So the idea of pretty much, hey, you got this resource I need. Why don't we go in together, and we'll finish this? And I've never played the game that way. And it was kind of very eye-opening. Like, oh, I didn't even think about this type of strategy. That if you can really team up with certain people, you might be able to keep other players from being able to progress. So it, it was a different approach. It was just a very different style than I've been used to. Yeah, it felt different from the couple other times I'd played it. It was it was it was interesting. Yeah, I just again I just had not really considered the idea of, hey, let's work together and yeah. I guess I just wasn't expecting that type of negotiation element since I don't this game isn't a negotiation game but yeah it kind of revealed a new facet of euphoria that's a definite topic that we can talk about another time I really think about negotiation in games and when's it okay to negotiate when is it again when is it a faux pas to talk about you know well hey you go do this and I'll go do this sure have you ever played city of horror I have not uh uh-uh. Okay, I've got that. You'll need to try that. Okay. <laughs> You're not a big fan of that, right? Oh, yeah. I love City of Horror. It, it's, it's, like a, it's a zombie game, but essentially it's a negotiation game. So you got to take a vote on who you're going to throw out whenever the zombies overrun a location. Oh, wow. So okay. it's, it's fascinating how the... So it's really a negotiation game with zombie theme thrown in, but it's, it's really good. I would be interested. I would be interested to give it a try. Those are the type of games, though, that there's that uncomfortable... That it kind of butts <laughs> up to the uncomfortable line. I, I've played a few werewolf games where people were just like, they really took it personally. Like when you're like, oh, you're going to try to kill me? Mm-hmm. You know? So I always, I like negotiation games, but I'm very cautious on who I play them with. So. And again, I think if you go in there and realize that you're going to have characters are going to die and you're not going to be able to save them all. I, I think... I'm okay with games where you know there's going to be a negotiation element. I think it's whenever there's like a mechanism that's kind of like the the take that, and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this game had this in here, and it it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth sometimes. But if I know up front it's going to be a negotiation game, I'm usually all for it because I know what to expect. Hmm. Okay, well, cool. So our central topic for today is all about trying to figure out what makes a good game. Okay, so one of the things that, I've, that we're really interested in is trying to figure out what kind of biases do we have towards certain games, because I think that has a significant impact on how much enjoyment we get out of a game. So I thought we'd kind of start off by exploring this idea of what makes a good game by looking first at what biases we have in regard to the games we play. I really like the the thought of thinking about, well, what do I think about a game or what biases am I bringing into a game when I first try it out? 
And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, what do I like in games? And for me, I love the feeling of timing or of making the best return on investment type thing. So I, I found out that I like a tighter game, a game where you have to, to muscle a little bit. You have to like maybe take a, an option that maybe someone else wanted, but, but I don't like it to be cutthroat. So uh, I call it my European passive-aggressive approach of I'm going to take this spot because I need this spot, but I also, it's even better because I know that you want that spot too. So it is kind of that, that I would say it's a pushing or shoving. It's just like a little elbow. Hey, just scoot on back there. I, I got to take this spot. So it, it is it is funny. Oh, it's all fun and games until someone does it to you, though. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's tricky. I mean, we just played, like I said, we played Ancient World, and there was, you did one thing that was just like, oh, I need that spot so bad. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, it hurts, but I, like I said, I, under, I understand. I understood why it was. The worst ones are just like, you know, I found, though, very quickly when I was learning to play games, I do have biases against games that are take-that-games is... I play a card and I kill you and and there's nothing you can do about it. And I, I don't know that there's that I, I found out that I need more of a, a game that I'm working with the system and I'm not trying to cheat the system beyond, you know, beyond what's allowed in the rules. That's the thing. I'm trying to think of, do I own a lot of take that games? I don't think I really do necessarily. I don't buy that. I don't buy them. Oh, I, I will say, I will say that uh, Cosmic Encounter was a game that I own, and I think it's a great game. I think it's a fantastic game. But I ended up trading it away because of the take that nature. We were playing with a group of friends, and somebody had a power, and they were really proud of their power. And someone said, no, you lose that power. You have to discard it and draw a new one. And I just remember the look on that guy's face. It was just like oh, well, you just took, like, what made me unique. I just, it, that was, like, the number one. I was like, I don't like this. I don't care how good the game is. If there is, like, a, I'm taking this from you, it becomes, it's difficult. It's challenging. Yeah. And I know a lot of games, especially worker placement games and other games in general, are accused of being multiplayer solitaire. Mm-hmm. So I, I like having some player interaction, but I don't want an interaction where they can completely decimate your entire plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are certain ways that you can do it inadvertently, but when you can go and just kind of blow up a card and it devastates their entire strategy, I'm just not a really huge fan of that. Are you talking about that time at BGGCon when I destroyed maths? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you tell Tell me more about this. <laughs> In Imperial Settlers, when I destroyed his barbarian something card that he was relying on. And cost him the game. Yeah. Well, so he claims. We were at uh, BGG Con this last year. They were playing Imperial Settlers. They were doing a promotion of the Sheriff of Nottingham. And so they had a, an actor who was playing dressed up as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Kevin Burkhardsmeyer. And he pretty much took you to school in Imperial Settlers, didn't he? Yeah, we taught him the game, and he he taught us the game, too. (laughs) Don't mess with the Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh, that's good. But the thing is, that game will live on in infamy forever, so. That really stuck in Matt's craw. He's still, it's still a a tender subject. Yeah, the, the next morning, 
I could still tell he was a bit miffed and was like, I'm surprised you're still talking to Jonathan. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, we know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to get Matt on sometime because a lot of our stories from BGG Con, some other things I'd like to bring up in future podcasts, he'd be a good guest to have on here. So we'll try to bring Matt in sometime. Yeah. If we can twist his arm. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, do you have any particular biases towards games? I have so many biases. I could do a whole episode all by myself. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, probably the number one things that come to my mind is I'm not crazy about auction games. Power grip! No! Uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't, I'm not crazy about heavyweight or even medium heavyweight kind of games, really. And I, I was just thinking about it. I'm just, I have this bias where the first time I play a game, if it's a competitive game, I usually just don't like it for some reason. I don't know why it takes me a couple games to really wrap my mind around the system of a game. So a lot of these games that I think I'm going to like, I'll play them. And the first time I play them, I don't like them. But then after I stew on them for a little bit, I'm ready to try them again. Unfortunately, we kind of bounce around a lot in games. And so it's kind of hard to get some repeat games in. So I know. I'm actually going back to the ancient world. I've been able to play that three times in the last week. So I'm ecstatic I was able to get that much play out of it in such a short amount of time. I think we're going to need to do a better job of trying to keep some more consistency. Because Clint and I own... Far too many games. Too many, yeah. Way too too many is the right word. (laughs) And you were saying as you were going through your collection, you had a little bit of a different experience looking through... I mean, you have a smaller collection. You still have a nice collection. I I was kind of amazed going through, thinking about this podcast and then going through my list on collection on BGG, just how many games just did not excite me. And I was like, why do I have these games? I don't know. That's interesting. There's got to be something that attracted you to them in the beginning. Yeah, something maybe changed over time. Maybe. I mean, I think, uh, you know, going back to our first podcast, there's some regrets, you know. I mean, I know you guys love love Small World, but it's never really clicked with me. And, you know, I bought it because it was one of the ones that were, you know, most recommended. Uh, Memoir 44, it's a good game, but I haven't really gotten enough play out of it. And it just sits in my closet, so. Yeah. But, I mean, there have been some auction games. Like, I know with Vault Wars, you actually were pleasantly surprised that you enjoyed that auction element. To that. Yes, that's one I really, really did like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, when I'm thinking about some of the games in terms of biases, and, I, again, this is hitting on things that we talked about in the past. I don't like games where it's so focused on getting points all the time. I feel like I'm missing out on part of the atmosphere when all you're focused on is getting points, 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 points. So those point salad games, I think I have a, okay, I do have a bias. I don't think I know I have a bias against those type of games. That That's a bit of a thing for me. I don't object to games that are all about getting points. I think just the constant, would I get more points if I do that? Or is it, you know, it's just you get, you're so bogged down the point element that I start losing a bit of the fun in it. Yeah. So I, I thought really hard about kind of what makes a good game for me. And there were a couple things that really emerged for me. So biases that I have in games, I want a game that allows me the opportunity to make interesting choices. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, I like having that strategy of I have these different options, I get to pick and choose, and there's different paths of victory. I like having that flexibility to kind of develop your own strategy, use different tactics to achieve that strategy. However, one other bias I have is that, just like anything, you can have too much of a good thing. 
Mm-hmm. So when you have a game that gives you so many options that you just get so bogged down in the choices, the number of choices you could do, I start losing some interest. That's one of the things I felt like the ancient world did is it gave you a limited number of spots on the board, but I never felt like it was overwhelming in terms of the number of options I had. It gave me enough choices to make of what type of strategy do I want to go with, but not so many that I'm like, ah, I just don't know what to do. We still had that experience every now and then where we just didn't know what would be a good next step because maybe someone took the space we wanted, but I like having those interesting choices. So I think crossing that line of having too many, that's a bit of a bias for me, and I don't like the point salad aspect. But one other thing that... Clint and I have talked about is I really like games that have an interesting theme to them. Mm-hmm. Something that's unique about it. And this can be the same thing for games that have unique mechanisms, but again, it's usually the theme that really draws me. I want a game that creates an interesting and immersive world to explore in some way. But not all games are going to do that. I know Tom Vassell's always complaining about trading in the Mediterranean. Things like that. And again, those themes aren't super exciting. But again, if the gameplay is fun enough, I can look past that. So really for me, I'm looking for kind of that combination of style and substance. Something that gets me excited about it. Something that draws me in to begin with. And that, you know, some really great games, if they had different themes, I may not have been as excited about them. I may not get as much enjoyment out of it. So I really think that that theme connection with the gameplay can make a huge difference. I 100% agree. I think that you can have a game that has a really terrible theme, trading in the Mediterranean or whatever. And I think that you can get a good game. You can get a good game out of it, or maybe even a great game, depending on how solid. I mean, some of I like quite a few games that it's got the old dour European on the cover that looks like he's ate too much bran or something and just just absolutely miserable on the box cover. But I think what makes a game special is a game that has that oof factor. It's got that the game is very fun, but man, it just everything feels like it just fits. Yeah. With the theme and the mechanics. Some of those games look like the traders have contracted scurvy or something absolutely agony absolutely (laughs) and it's just like you know they're not good advertisers for the game i mean some of my friends would look at that and say well i got us why would i play that game that guy doesn't look like he's having any fun you know i know and this aesthetic element i think that's a big draw for me i know there are, are plenty of terrible games that have good art But again, if a game is a really strong game but has artwork that supplements it, just takes it up a level for me. Yeah. So. I mean, I have a game by Queen. It's Escape the Temple, Curse of the Temple. Uh And you see that thing, and the art's not like the most captivating art in the world. But I mean, this Indiana Jones like figure is running, and there's a spooky statue behind him, and he's got these gems falling out of his thing. And I look at that box cover, and I'm like, that looks fun you know that looks like something exciting and you look at the box cover and you know what you're playing in the game i really feel like that's a person that's done with the art direction they've done a good job if i look at the box and i'm like oh wow and usually like i said when you explain a game that has really good box art or does a good job of explaining People you're trying to explain the game are like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. You know, Mm -hmm. while they say, okay, so you're running to the temple. I'm like, duh, I saw that on the box cover. You know, so it's pretty funny. When I first got into the hobby, I got Settlers of Catan. I got the third edition, 
which has, frankly, some really awful box art. It's just really dry looking. So I kept having to tell people, don't, don't get turned off by the box art. The box art can make a huge difference, but also within the game. There have been some games, I, I know the whole don't judge a book by its cover, but you pick up a game in a game store, you're feeling the compulsion to buy something. You don't need to buy it, but you just want to buy something. And you pick up a game, you flip it over, oh, it looks and then you look at the back, and I'm like, oh. Uh, you don't, I don't even, sometimes you don't even read what the game is about. It's because the aesthetics just turn you off a bit. And I, I know that's unfair, but I know. I want a game that's kind of pretty to look at. So. No, that makes total sense. So one thing I want to ask you guys in, in relation to biases are there certain types of games that you just are really drawn towards? I'm a real sucker for card games, especially card games where you can use the cards in multiple ways, like Bruges. Mm. I like anything where you can do some combos. I like Imperial Settlers where you're kind of building up, you know, round by round. You're, you're using your cards for different things, and you're kind of building up, and then, you know, sometimes you can build over some of them, use them as foundations and stuff like that. I kind of like those kind of games. Yeah. Are there any other types of games that you just really love? Yes. The other thing, so the the two marriages for me, worker placement, I love worker placement. I'm a sucker for worker placement. And it kind of comes down to the the decision-making, the choices. You know, I have interesting choices, but I have a limited amount of actions to take those choices. But the other thing that always gets me is exploration. I want to feel like, wow, I flip that card, and it's kind of like what we had in, in the ancient world that you said, whoa, I've never seen that card before. Mm-hmm. I, I love that feeling. I, I love looking into the unknown, even though I've seen all the tiles before or those are things. It's like the feeling of going out and exploring or seeing something new that only you've seen. I, I, it really catches me, and I've started to really gravitate to that. And I wish I had more games that did capitalize on that exploration element. I think it's one of the things I like about Civilization is that you have that fog war and then you get to flip over the tile and you get to see what is revealed. Yeah. That's really neat. But again, I feel like a lot of those games that have that emphasis on exploration maybe take a little bit longer. And that's really tough. So again, I think another bias I might have is really long games. I just, I, I, I don't have the time to do them. I wish I did. But if a game's going to take more than two hours at least what's printed on the box it kind of pushes me away these days i could see i could definitely see that one of the other biases that i had and this is i I used to call it the fantasy flight bias but i i'm starting to kind of back off this and it's kind of changed a little bit there are games i really do not have patience anymore for needlessly complicated games yeah if if you have three facts for your game, you've missed something. I, I feel like it's on the game designer after that, mm-hmm. you know. And I respect a lot of choices and a lot of interact possible interactions. And so, if a game has a fact, I'm not one of my favorite games is Robinson Crusoe, and it's got a very sizable fact. But a lot of that is not because of the rules of the game; it's because of the different situations that can come up with the cards or a scenario. I guess my idea now is is that if this action is not available because it's the second Tuesday of the month and you get a plus two, but you really get a minus two because you have this item and you're in this position, that just starts to become needlessly complicated. And I tend to shy away from that and I kind of say, no, that's not quite for me. Yeah, I definitely like a bit of elegance, uh, simplicity. I would much rather play oftentimes a gateway game 
than some of these really gargantuan games. I really do enjoy a lot of those gateway games. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily because I might be able to introduce them to other people who maybe not be as interested in games, but I just I just like them. I like some strategic depth, but I don't want to be just buried in it sometimes. Yeah. Or have so many things going on. It gets lost in the mix. 100% agree. Mm-hmm. So one of the game types that I've, I was kind of looking through some of the games that I've rated the highest, and a couple things have emerged for me. One is I really love area control games. Mm-hmm. Just something about having trying to get control and take charge of it and possibly getting pushed out. I like that back and forth mm-hmm. of control area control games. But also I noticed that some of the games I like with Power Grid and Terra Mystica, you also have, it's not really route building, but you're doing networking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that as well. Yeah. So those are kind of two games I feel like I'm drawn towards to a certain extent. But I also like worker placement, but I feel like I got a little burned out on worker placement games. I don't blame you. So when a, a game comes along that adds some type of twist or new element to the worker placement genre, I get excited about it. Yeah, I, I do say that, Sean, I think that you and I have a very similar taste in games. And I, I like area control too. I like area control and I like auctions. I like bidding. And I think that kind of ties back into that indirect interaction of that. We played another game, uh, Ginkopolis was Mm -hmm. another game that we played. And I really liked that game because like I said, you're not hurting other people, but you are trying to muscle in there. You're trying to get that tile. You're trying to get that area majority. Somebody playing a cool move and moving in for that. I think it feels better to like outnumber somebody and get the majority and get the most points and you get the second most points. I feel like that that's like a win. I, I enjoy that better than my guy attacks your guy and now I have more guys because instead of outnumbering you, I kill your guys. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really love like auctions and those type of things of that indirect or that kind of just muscling in a little bit, but not like bang, 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 I'm shooting all your guys. Yeah, no, absolutely. In terms of with the biases, are there any games that you feel like you thought you were going to hate when you were first introduced to it, but you were pleasantly surprised that you liked it more than you thought? Uh, I had a hard time with this question thinking about it, but Mysterium was probably the first thing that came to my mind. I, I just wasn't really that enthused about trying it. I was just doing it because Sean wanted me to do it. So. <laughs> I really did. That was a drop <laughs> trying, so much. <laughs> trying to be a friend here, but it was way better than I expected, and I've you know played it probably five times now at least, and it's it's been pretty good. I've enjoyed it. Oh, good. I, I tend to try to get you to play games that I can tell you're not really excited about, but I'm glad that at least Mysterium ended up being one that you enjoyed. <laughs> that one hooked Sean. Now she's going to be a sucker in the balls, money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And with Mysterium, with I know they've been starting to put out some advertisements in some of the magazines, and the art style is different. I want to see more. It looks interesting. I don't know. It, I know it's it's. I want to see. I mean, I I just have this really horrible feeling I'm going to end up owning two different versions of the same game. I just have this horrible idea that's, that's going to happen. I have a feeling. I kind of feel the same way. I well, I feel. <laughs> like, I'm going to buy two versions. Yes, I, guess, I, kinda, <laughs> I feel that way too. Yeah, that, that's how it always goes. But no, I w- remember when we talked about that, and I said the art was different, and I said, "Wow, that's a really big deal. I may import it." Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, "I'm going to own this game, and I think I like the original artwork better, but I think I'm going to end up getting the new one because I know it needs expansions to stay fresh." I know it's going to need add-on content. 
And if I know to myself that I'm going to have to continue to buy new expansions, I don't want to have to keep importing expansions. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you know what? I feel like that game, because only one person, as long as the one person's not playing the ghost repeatedly, and because you're playing with different players, it does keep it fresh. But I do agree that if you were always the ghost and you're playing with the same group, that it would probably lose a little bit of its luster because you'd pretty much figure out, okay, this card means that. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that it has enough going for it that even without an expansion, if you were able to rotate who the ghost is, I think it still has some staying power. Yeah, really, really like that game. But again, I want to see what the English version's artwork's going to look like. Again, the Disney feel was kind of a turnoff initially because it just didn't match what the Polish and Ukrainian version looked like. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Actually, the other thing for me is Dixit. I own all the the art for Dixit. I own all the expansions for Dixit of the original artist. And then they changed artists. I haven't bought one. I, I just don't want them. The reason why I keep you don't want those cards mixing. I, I don't. Stay away. I, yeah, unclean. I, I don't want. I don't want those things to mix. I don't know why. I, I like. Uh, I think when you talk about that that idea of presentation, uh, the cards are so weird. But I want them to be unified, weird, mm-hmm. not like multiple artists weird. So I, I, it's it's just it's a funny thing for me. So yeah, yeah. So is there a game in particular that? you feel like you were going to hate, but you ended up not hating as much as you thought? I think this in general, uh, D&D, when I grew up, I thought D&D was for nerds and hated D&D all the way. Yeah, I just thought that that was the weird thing. I just, all I think is like, pass me the Cheetos. But I had a group of friends that invited me to play D&D and haven't played a ton, but I got to play with them and it was one of the best experiences I've ever played. Great friendship thing. Still remember some of the things I did with my friends. It was it was a great experience. And again, that kind of what turned me on to that idea of theme. Of can a game evoke a theme or can it tell a story without having like a game master yeah. pushing through. Yeah. So And for me, I won't beat a dead horse. We talked about it last week, but playing Castles of Burgundy I liked it a lot more than I anticipated liking it. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's it's a solid game. We I almost picked it up at the game store, but Ancient World failed for life. What, what failed for life? <laughs> failed for president. <laughs> I'm gonna get that tattooed. It'll be the only tattoo I ever have. <laughs> oh dear. So tying in with this idea of what makes a good game? What's the best way to evaluate a game, in your opinion? Do you use the Board Game Geek rating system? Do you like the thumbs-up, thumbs-down approach? Or do you not really care about how games are reviewed? I think it's interesting when you look at it now. I mean, I play video games on occasion, and one of the big things that's changing with video games is a lot of the big video game sites are starting to move away from actual like number ratings. Which is really a huge thing because a lot of those games depend on good reviews. Good reviews mean good sales. And we look at award season, I mean, some games, some companies are made if they're, you know, make or break if they get the Spiel des Jahres. It changes the fortunes of that game. It gets the game notified. And so I think it's really valuable. I used to be like a big numbers guy, like what the game is a 10 what game is a nine? But the more and more like I start to evaluate games, I can tell very easy between a nine and a ten and a one and a zero. But once you start getting into the nitty gritty of like 
decimal points or you know what makes a game an eight and what makes a game a nine it starts getting more fuzzy and i i start, started to kind of lean away from like the number rating system yeah i'm not real crazy about number rating systems i just don't really think about that very often i know that a lot of reviewers i follow and, and look at you know they'll use numbers or whatever but i kind of boil down to you know is it a game that i you know, hate, or is it a game that I like a little bit, or is it a game I'm, I, am I willing to play this game again and again, and I just kind of have maybe three or four broad categories, I have a hard time, like you said, splitting between a seven and an eight, or something like that. Yeah, at one point, I started out rating a lot of my games, but again, I found out that same kind of situation where I was, I was giving lots of sevens mm-hmm. to games. And I think that's kind of a trend that emerged in video game reviews as well. Mm-hmm. No, 7.2, you know, yeah. that was this there. I think I got 7.2. So I don't do the decimal points. I, I try to follow the kind of the board game geek rating system to kind of keep it in line with kind of what their definition of an outstanding game is. Yeah. But I definitely have some games that I rate a 10 that other people wouldn't. But yeah. I just feel like the definition that Board Game Geek uses is an outstanding game that you'll always want to play it and you don't foresee that changing anytime soon. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I've reserved for my tens that the games that I just constantly, I want to get this out. Yeah. I want mm-hmm. to play this. Mm-hmm. I could probably be a little bit more generous with my tens. I know some people are very, very stodgy with giving out tens because. Mm-hmm. I don't view it as the perfect game because that's just not going to exist. But a game that's personally for me, something that I love, I think that's a big thing, especially when you're talking about other people reviewing games. I want to know, I want to get to know the reviewer. I want to know what their preferences are, what their style is, and that can help me to know what my own preferences are and help me to make a decision. Okay, this reviewer really loved it, but they'd like a different style of game than I do. Would I like it as much? And it still gives you some information to make an informed choice. No, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I feel like the numbers don't help me as much as the person. Mm-hmm. If, if one of the reviewers that I usually listen to says, well, this game's super aggressive, knowing that person, their type of aggressive is not the aggressive of like what I know. So I, I usually, I can usually evaluate a game very well off who said it, not exactly you know what they said yeah so if if somebody walks up like i said if sean if you said there was this great there was this worker placement game i really liked it mm-hmm. i'm probably like mm, you know sean and i like very like we have similar tasting games and i'm ready to take it on face value if i see a card combo type game mm-hmm. i'm going to go off jonathan like uh, I'm a huge fan of Bruges. I like Glory to Rome. I think that Jonathan needs to come around to Glory to Rome. But I've only got to play it once. So, but uh, all in all, though, I know what people like, and I know if they say, "Wow, this is a good game," I know that they've played a lot of those type of games. So I really kind of respect their opinion when they talk about those type of games. And that really ties in very nicely with another question: What reviewers are some of your favorites? So people who actually put out video reviews or written reviews who are the people that you really go to as far as written reviews and i apologize if i butcher your name here but dan thoreau from space biff is one of my favorite um, written reviewers i pretty much read everything he writes it does a real good job of uh analyzing a game telling you you know the pros and cons of it he puts in some nice pictures of actual gameplay and he has just really engaging writing style that i really enjoy has a sense of humor as he's describing, you know, the gameplay and 
I kind of get a sense of what that game's going to be, you know, what that experience is just from reading his reviews. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I know you're a big fan of Rado and his run-throughs. Yeah, I've kind of turned into a big Rado nerd. I, you know, we I don't think Rado and I have the same style of games that we like. Uh, he's kind of a little bit aggression adverse. He doesn't like to uh, have games where you're you're dueling it out and things like that. But I really love his ability to just kind of run you through a game. You can see how it plays, and then he he'll tell you how he feels about it at the end of the game, and and you can kind of get a feel for what games he likes, what appeals to him, what doesn't work for him, and then you know say okay it's a good game and uh rado it didn't work for rado but it would probably would work for me because i do like that style of game yeah the one thing i really i appreciate with what rado does is he's very focused on games that work with two players and i know him and his wife really don't like the aggressive aspects and i i can tolerate a little bit more i don't like overtly aggressive games either but being able to see a reviewer that's able to give a nice kind of overview of the game but also give some insights and this worked really well for two players i had some quibbles about with two players it just doesn't work at all it gives me a lot of great insight especially since i i get to play with my game group but i also want to i want to find games that work well so i can play with my wife as well i'm definitely a big fan of rado the reviewers again i just find them immensely entertaining and i started watching them from the very beginning um and that shut up and sit down (laughs) i love these guys they've been a big inspiration for for me i really love i wish that i could be a fraction as cool as they are but their sense of humor the way they deliver things i don't agree with everything they really didn't like my statistics which which broke my heart but it's okay we I, you're not going to find a reviewer that matches up with your interest 100 percent. but again i i love the way they present the information they make it fun but they still provide you some good information and again you get to see kind of what their preferences are, what their style is, and you can make your own informed decision based upon that. So I really enjoy Shut Up and Sit Down. For me, my go-to for, with no matter what is Tom and Eric uh, on the Dice Tower. And it kind of ties back into that idea of I know Tom and Eric. They just basically celebrated their 400th podcast. I've listen to almost all 400 podcasts so i have a very very good idea of what tom likes so even if like i said i tom gives a bad review to a game or talks about it i really appreciate him talking through what he liked and what he didn't like and i can really feel like i can get a good idea of what the game is just by how Tom and Eric evaluate a game. I I really appreciate uh, Eric's opinion. I don't think he gives a lot of, he doesn't do a ton of reviews and I feel like Eric has a very good, this is kind of a downside of a, of a reviewer. I like a person that can say, I didn't like the game and here's why. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I feel like Eric does a very good job of saying, well, it wasn't my cup of tea, but he never really says, you know what? This is not. It's not a game. This is. Not, I don't like this game. You know. And uh, I feel like sometimes he's like, well, I don't know if I. I don't think I'd ever pick this up. And so sometimes I want that kind of definitive. No, this is. This one wasn't for me. But I feel like Eric is one that if he likes a game, I'm definitely going to check it out because he is kind of like I said that that Euro balance type game. So we have very similar interests. Yeah. Would you define yourself more as a Euro gamer? an Ameritrash gamer, or an Omni gamer? I I am a Euro gamer at heart. I really am. It, to me, mechanics, mechanics, 
over over theme. I think that theme makes a game special, but I'm definitely a Euro gamer that it has has one foot in the thematic part of Ameri- like the Ameritrash. Mm-hmm. Jonathan? I don't know how to answer this question. I'd probably say Ameritrash, but maybe I'm just, you know, in denial. Maybe I'm I'm an in-the-closet Euro gamer. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitively an Omnigamer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have definitely have some thematic games that maybe the gameplay is not as great, but I still enjoy them. But again, I think I got a little... I don't want to say burned out, but I think I get, got a little tired of some of the Euro games. And I found myself being drawn towards more interesting thematic games games that told interesting stories, things like that. And that's that's part of the reason why we wanted to do this topic is because we wanted to give our listeners a better sense of kind of who we are as gamers as well. So if you've listened to our other podcasts, you know I'm really interested in games that tell a good story and things like that. You know that Clint really likes worker placement games. You know that Jonathan, well, I thought you loved... Stefan Feld now he, like, he likes games question mark <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> so uh J- Jonathan's our wild card we don't know what he's what he's thinking time to time so mm-hmm. but it is now time to wrap things up and introduce our punch list for this week so the punch list I give you a characteristic of a game and you have to give me a game that you deem punch worthy it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the best game but one that you consider a favorite all right Mm -hmm. so this week's punch list ready or not and we're gonna go back to the very beginning of this podcast tell me what game has the best art style that isn't a ryan lockett game (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. So I will go for... Uh, oh, that's good. Yeah. No, you go first. John's cringing. I want to go first because I want to steal yours. <laughs> You're going to do it? Well, I was going to steal yours. What was, what was mine? Go for it. Yours is Mice and Mystics. It was not Mice and Mystics. Oh, oh wow. Okay. That, you want to go with that one? Yeah, go, Jonathan. I, w- I would have to go with Mice and Mystics. I, I love John Arios' work on that. I feel like he kind of took it up a, st- a notch from his Summoner Wars work and... On every tile, it's different, and every square, quote-unquote square, is a different shape, and it just has kind of that organic feel. And it's dark and a little bit muted, but it works. I mean, that's that's what it, what it's going for, and I, I really, really like it a lot. No, don't get me wrong. I do like his art style a lot. I, do really, I think that's a lot of what makes Mice and Mystics Mice and Mystics. You didn't steal it from me. I'm sorry. You can try harder next time. I will. All right. Go for it. You want me to go? All right. I'm going to go with Legends of Andor. Because <laughs> I really like Michael Menzel's artwork. I think the first game that I had with that had his artwork was Pillars of the Earth. And I've just I've always been impressed with his with his art style. With Stone Age, even with Bruges. I was about to say, didn't he, he do did some wonderful I, character cards of Bruges there? I, I do like the artwork of Bruges, just not as big of a fan of the gameplay. I think I like, I really love this idea of artists who also design their own games, which I think Ryan Lockett does a really great job of. Michael Menzel does with his Legends of Andor, sorely under underrated game. But I really love that art style, that the, the details he chooses to add in, like in the player pieces, for example. All of the player boards, 
have a female and a male side. He gave you separate tokens for the female and male tokens. He didn't have to do that. The monster tokens, they had a front side, and you could see the back side of them. It, it's just great. Just the amount of detail, and you can tell that this is a work of passion. And we were kind of talking about this a little bit, about those designers, when they're designing it, they don't have to go through some other person. Their vision is what they intended. So they're what they want in the game, they're able to make it happen. And that really shines through a lot in Legends of Andor for me. Mm-hmm. I like this question. For me... I'm looking at it, and I. The question for me is, is that no matter what happens, like when I talk about great artwork, I'm thinking, what would a game be if it didn't have this artwork? Could I imagine it? Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, my art would be Dixit. Very interesting. Maybe not exactly like you said, a board game. Oh, don't be so uptight. No, yeah, it's a board okay, game. okay, it's a board game. But for me, I mean, there are other fantastic fantastic choices i think both of you guys gave good good choices but for me dixit is made that art is made and every single time people look at it they're like that is weird but for some weird reason that is a game that i just love just looking at the cards and just it feels like i'm in alice in wonderland i mean the the original edition that i that i got i mean the the guys scoring meeples were bunnies were rabbits mm-hmm. and and i know that was probably an homage to the the rabbit in in alice in wonderland and i feel like that is just that the art just captivates me it's strange you can tell a million different stories no story no two stories are the same when you look at that i just i just love it i like getting that game out even though it's not my favorite game by any stretch i love getting that game out just just to you know, just to see people look at that artwork and just look at the artwork, and so I really admire that, and I feel like that makes the game. If someone else were to draw those pictures, I don't think it would just. I don't think it would be the same. I think it it fits perfectly for that game. Excellent, fine job, gentlemen. So this brings the end of episode number five for the Punch and Played podcast. You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and you can go directly to our website at punchedandplayed.com. We're on iTunes as well. Please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Give us feedback, and we'll definitely take it into consideration. So until next time, remember, if you're going to punch them, make sure you play them.